Well, good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just want to thank you for being here today. Uh, Your presence means a lot to me. When God's people gather together, there's something special that happens, and you minister to me just as much as I minister from this pulpit. So thank you for, for being here and being present. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we ask that you be the one to teach us now. And Lord, it is my prayer, my desire that your Holy Spirit come to reveal his word to us and that in the process of it, we would make much of Jesus, who is the true image of God. We pray, Lord, that as this text teaches us, that we would come away understanding our purpose here in this world and that we would also come away, Lord, knowing just how great and how magnificent and how glorious you are. May you receive all the praise this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. I am delighted to get so much positive feedback from you from our studies in Genesis. Even those who have differed somewhat from my interpretations, I'm glad you're still able to focus on the major issues as to what this book is all about. That it is primarily about God. Genesis reveals to us what type of God is Yahweh. That is, in comparison to what the pagans believed about their deities, and also what the Lord God's purposes are for his creation. We covered a lot of ground last week, so before we get to our primary text this morning, once again, let me just provide you with a brief recap. The book of Genesis is constructed in a very organized way. It begins with a majestic prologue that tells us the source of everything is the Lord God. Then it's followed by 10 successive sections, or sometimes called books, that begin with the Hebrew phrase toledot, which translated in English is this is the account of, or these are the generations of, which will take us from Adam all the way to Joseph and his brothers living in Egypt. Lord willing, we will get into the first book of Genesis in just a few weeks. But last Sunday, we started at the prologue. We saw that there was a pattern within each creation day. Generally, there are seven elements in each. First, we have the announcement of God with the words, and God said. Second is the decree, let there be. And as God decreed, there is third, some sort of organization by separation and boundaries demonstrating the Lord's sovereignty. Fourth, we have a report by the narrator with the words, and so God made, revealing whatever God decreed came into being just as he specified. And fifth is the naming of the creation. Six would be God's evaluation that might or might not include a blessing And finally, we're presented with the chronological framework. There was evening and there was morning with the announcement of the specific day. That is the general paradigm. We also highlighted in our study of the prologue that when there is variation in this pattern, we should take note of it. For example, we saw that God stops naming things on day three. Adam will get that privilege as his vice regent upon the earth beginning in chapter two. There's no evaluation on day two, not because what God did on that day was bad, but that his creation was not ready for life until day three. Once it's prepared for living organisms, it is then declared good. 
So with this background, let's consider the sixth day of creation. Of all the creation days, none is given more description than day six, highlighting the creation of man and woman. It is definitely worth taking a single sermon here to focus on these verses. But before I do that, I need to address why we seemingly have two descriptions of the creation of humanity, one here in chapter 1 and the other in chapter 2. Now, some scholars believe that one of these accounts is obviously a later insertion in that one report should be more accurate than the other, but both stories were captured by later editors of the book. Others view Genesis 1 as a broad overview and Genesis 2 as a folk tale intended to teach morality when linked with the story of the serpent in Genesis 3. This latter view is proposed by many theistic evolutionists. But the overwhelming number of conservative Jewish and Christian scholars believe that we have two accurate accounts that parallel one another. There are two good reasons for believing this. First, it appears to follow the Hebrew literary style of moving from the greater to the lesser. We, we saw this earlier in Genesis 1, where Moses describes the creation of the universe, and then he narrows it down specifically to the earth. Jesus does this frequently within his teachings. A good example is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says things like, you have heard it say you should not commit adultery, but if you commit it in your heart, you're already guilty. You've heard it said you should not commit murder, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty. In Jewish thinking, it makes complete sense that Moses would move from this majestic prologue of all of creation and then use that to build upon to narrow down to the creation of mankind. The second reason we have two accounts is that Genesis 2-4 begins with the first Toledot sequence. Because we have nine more of these introductions, it shows that Genesis 2, that this Genesis 2 account was by design. When we see these words in our ESV as these are the generations, it means that the story is building on itself. This is what happens next based upon what happened in the previous book. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 4, we're told about Adam who came from the earth in the following account. And the next book in chapter 5, verse 1, will tell us about the descendants of Seth, God's chosen offspring from Adam after Abel was murdered by Cain and so on. So it makes perfect sense here to have this account of Adam beginning from his creation to the offspring of his third son. So both accounts would be, appear to be needed here in communicating the author's message here about the creation of man. Now let's get into the text here of the sixth day. We need to begin with verse 24 as it's going to parallel the next account in Genesis 2 when God brings the parade of animals to Adam to name demonstrating the uniqueness of Eve. Now, these first two verses of day six will emphasize the creation of man. Genesis 1, verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. On day five... God created the sea creatures and bird life to fill the oceans and the sky. Note that God pronounces a blessing for these new creatures to be fruitful and to multiply in verse 22. We have yet to have that blessing on day six. 
God is not done with his work on this day yet. God begins day six by filling the earth with land-based creatures. Your ESV translations are pretty good here. God brought forth living creatures according to their kinds. And here God specifies domestic animals, creeping things, which would include reptiles and insects, and beasts, which indicate non-domesticated land creatures. And yes, such a description could include dinosaurs, but I'm going to avoid that topic for now. We should take note that the term for livestock is used in this verse. So there was already in the mind of God that the animal kingdom would be used in service of humanity. And the second thing that we should note is that God created the animal kingdom according to their kinds. He creates biodiversity, different, separate species from the outset, providing the right environment for men and women. And God concludes the making of these land-based creatures by pronouncing that what he did was good. So like I said earlier, we should perk up whenever we see variation in the creation day pattern. And starting in verse 26, we see, see, see something here that is highly unusual. God speaks to us. He refers to himself with a plural pronoun. Our image and our likeness. What should we read into that? Is this a case where the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost begins to emerge? Well, that's one interpretation. Another is that God is making this pronouncement to what is commonly referred to as the heavenly court of his angelic beings. That might be a possibility as well. Well, let me explain why. This plural pronoun announcement is used in two other places in the book. The first is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. We read there, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And later, it's also used at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, verse 7. Come, let us go down, and there, go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So there are some well-meaning scholars that ask, why would God need to speak to himself? And they look at other passages in the Old Testament, like Job chapter 1, verse 6, where we're told there now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is obviously a time when the angelic beings, uh, including the devil being one of them, they are not omnipresent, so they have to report to God in some fashion. And then we have other texts in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6 of his prophecy, where he saw angels present around the throne of God. The prophet Micaiah saw the same vision of God in 1 Kings chapter 22. You also have passages like Psalm 29, where David calls upon the angelic beings to give praise to God alongside the rest of creation. He commands, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor and in holiness. Which is precisely what happens when Jesus is born in Luke 2, when the angels appear to the shepherds. And the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5, John sees God amidst his holy entourage. So God speaking to his holy court and informing them of what he is doing is not that unusual, but that is a plausible answer here. But in this specific case, 
I think we have a mystery that is only explainable by the later revelation of the Trinity. The primary reason I believe this is not the word translated as us, but the word our. When God states he is going to create Adam in his image and in his likeness, that would seem to exclude any other angelic beings present. We will look at the concept of the image of God in just a moment. But according to the New Testament, the ultimate portrayal of the exact image of God is the Lord Jesus. We just read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So I think that the our image and our likeness is exclusive to Yahweh. Therefore, he is speaking aloud to himself for emphasis for the recorded word and possibly to enlighten the angels to the status of mankind, which no doubt would have antagonized Satan. But observe how unusual this is. Prior to this point, all other creatures were created according to their kind. Here is something special and unique from the rest of creation, that man is created according to the image of God. And if we are to believe this statement is accurate, I would say this does not leave room for a process of mankind evolving from a different species. Men and women are created by special creation. And in context of Genesis 1, let's examine what it means by this phrase here, the image of God. Sometimes you're going to hear this in theological circles referred to in the Latin phrase, imago dei. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are God's likeness, his image. We are facsimiles of God, but we are not God, nor are we God's little g, as the Mormons teach. Again, see how man is distinguished from the rest of the land-based creatures, including sea life and the aviary. This should astound us. This is obviously a great privilege. And from this verse, we can discern two attributes of the image of God. Number one, the image of God includes the divine right to rule over creation. Ancient cultures would would have understood this concept of likeness. Whenever a king ruled over a region, he placed an image of himself in that area. That image was representative of his rule. And human beings are to rule creation on the Lord's behalf. We are his image of authority. We're told the purpose of man in verse 26, to have dominion. Later in the divine blessing of verse 28, the verb subdue will also be used, meaning we don't just rule over the world, we also make use of the earth. We harness it. As part of our rule, we work the earth just like our creator. It's not wrong for us to mine the earth or harvest the earth's resources. It's not wrong for us to domesticate animals. We'll see from chapter 2, verse 5, that God intended man to work the ground. Now, I'm going to say a little bit more about this in our application section here at the end. But we should observe in verses 28 through 30 that this right to steward the earth extends to the plant kingdom as well as the animal kingdom. And in addition to this right to steward the earth within the image of God, it is a consequence that we are created to be in relationship with our Creator. The rest of creation is just to be fruitful and fill the earth. They need no other divine guidance. 
But men and women need the Lord's superintendence as his vice regents. And this is emphasized even more as God says, let us make man in our image and that this creature of man will be able to relate to us in a way that is utterly unique. So as we've been learning from our Psalm of the Year, Psalm 8, and from our very first sermon when we began Genesis, as his image bearers, we are created with the purpose to rule the earth for the glory of our creator. Yes, we've ruined that through sin, but our original purpose was to steward the earth for God's glory so that he might be magnified and adored. And because that is our created purpose, it is still intact. And it is the purpose for which Christ has come to redeem us. But we need to look at one more aspect of being an image bearer in verse 27. This is the first poem in the Bible, which would imply that the Holy Spirit wanted it to be memorable. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's image includes the concept of gender. And this verse highlights that God's purpose in having two distinct genders is related to his image. Now, I don't have time that I'd like to spend on such an important topic today. Lord willing, we're going to address this in detail when we get to Genesis chapter 2 with the creation of woman. But the role of gender is important in the creation account because it will become a typology of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church, as he redeems us and we rule once again in eternity in the way that God desires with his original intention. So the question might arise here. When Adam and Eve sinned, did mankind lose the image of God? Let me make three quick points about this and save any other references for our application section. Number one, after the fall, the image of God was distorted, but it was not lost. After the fall, the image of God was distorted, but it was not lost. We are still intended to be his image bearers. In his wisdom, Solomon states, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We have corrupted that relationship by our rebellion to rule underneath God. But the image still exists. And the reason I say this is because God makes reference to it once again after the flood in Genesis 9-6. There we are instructed not to kill one another because we are created in the image of God. When the Apostle James talks about the sins of the tongue, he speaks of the awful nature of harming someone created in God's image. He writes, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So the divine image within humanity still exists. It is upheld despite its corruption. However, it is through our redemption in Christ that leads to a progressive recovery of God's image. So our redemption in Christ leads to a progressive recovery of God's image. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Through Jesus' atonement at the cross, he has severed the rule of sin from our lives. 
He has liberated us from the slavery of sin. It is our destiny to have the image of God completely restored in us. And it begins upon salvation. Paul wrote to the Colossians to put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The old self is our sinful rebellion. The new is as we were intended when we were created, though now in Christ. He told the Ephesians to make use of the gift of the church, the body of Christ, so that instead of being tossed to and fro by every philosophy of the world, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from, the one, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. By our redemption through Christ, the Spirit is sanctifying us to recover the image of God found in Christ. And finally, the image of God will be completely restored upon Christ's return. The image of God will be completely restored to us upon Christ's return. The Apostle Paul reveals this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, after our resurrection. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of man of heaven. John wrote to his brothers and sisters, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's that progress of sanctification happening again. So yes, the image of God is still intact. The redemption of Christ begins our recovery of the image and it will be fully restored upon his return. It's only a matter of time. The final verses of Genesis 1 conclude with the divine blessing here in verses 28 and 30. Notice the plural here in the blessing. And God blessed them. He speaks directly to them, both man and woman. By context, this is not just the animal kingdom overall. And here is the fourfold purpose. Multiply, fill, subdue, and steward. And once again, that would apply before sin entering to the world that God would be glorified by men and women and the rest of creation fulfilling their stated purposes. Verses 29 through 30 implies that our intended diet was vegetarian. And that may very well be the case. And I'm still a little bit on the fence on that one as to whether things like dairy products and stuff weren't intended. Um, and I still enjoy a good steak right now, too. But we'll talk about that later. I'll get more into that when we look at the curse of the earth found in chapter 3. But don't miss the larger point here. Don't get lost on whether or not we're supposed to be vegans now. It's what God says about himself here. I have given you Two times he says that. The Lord provides the ideal environment for his creation to thrive. He has set up a perfect system with men and women as his representatives overseeing his creation. And now when he looks upon all of it, he doesn't just say it's good, but it is very good. So let's take a moment just to move from head knowledge to heart knowledge. I have four applications for us this morning. 
It is clear from Genesis 1 that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. The whole of the earth was created to be a perfect environment for men and women to dwell and flourish. No other creatures were created with the divine image. God intended humanity to rule the earth well on his behalf. So three things here to conclude from this, under this first application here. Number one, you are special. You are special. Saved or unsaved, you are created in the image of God. And it's my prayer that you will recover that image fully. It should go without saying, all babies, all children, all adults, all senior adults, all of life is important to God because we are image bearers of Him. Second, our common origin and our common purpose means that none of us are beyond the scope of God's redemption. I hesitate to use the phrase universal Savior as it relates to the salvation of man. I prefer the phrase global Savior. Jesus redeems us no matter our ethnicity or our background. All people groups can obtain this restoration of the image of God through Christ. And third, don't miss the point here. While we are the pinnacle of God's creation, it's not about us. We are about the glory of our Creator. Anything we do and how we live should be under His direction and rule. We exist to glorify Him, not for Him to glorify us. We exist to make much of Him, not for Him to make much of us. He's already done that for us. A second application comes from the divine mandate. If we are to steward the earth, then Christians should be concerned about the global environments. Christians should be concerned about the global environment. Now, please, this is not a sermon about global warming, nor am I advocating that a single human government should manage the entire world. But hear me aright. We are to steward the earth and its resources, not exploit it as though it doesn't belong to God. We should challenge ourselves with questions like, Am I striving to leave the earth in as good, if not better, condition than when I found it? If the earth was created so that humanity might flourish, then what are we doing to help our fellow men and women here on the earth to flourish in our social engagements? I want to stress that we do this under the direction of our Creator through His Word and for His glory. We seek His guidance on this. We don't leave important environmental and social decisions to politicians, to activists, to talk show pundits, or any other man-oriented source that you could name. We allow the infallible Word of God to speak to us. But Christians should be setting the example as to how to steward the earth well. Third, we cannot escape the conversation regarding gender. It's very clear from the outset that gender is not a social construct, but a God-given prerogative. And as our creator, he is the one that defines the issue for us. He created us male and female. 
He did not create us anything else in between, such as androgynous or non-binary. Nor did he leave it up to us to choose to be whatever we want. When we get to Genesis 2, we'll discuss more why these distinctions are important. And now I realize, likely I've just lost a certain segment of my listeners that disagree with me, and I've just been canceled out. But I want to speak to those of you who do agree with me. I hope you didn't just hear my confirmation of gender distinctions and were thinking, yeah, go get them, pastor. Tell them what they're doing wrong. I hope that you have the same concern and love for these image bearers that I do. When I see someone struggling with their gender, I see someone searching for something that will bring them hope, that will give them some sort of satisfaction by doing a certain thing or living a certain way. And I see them grasping for futile things, just like I once did, thinking, well, maybe this is what's going to bring me fulfillment. Maybe this is what will make me finally happy. Maybe this is what's going to bring me joy. They are in the same hopeless estate that I was prior to Christ entering my life. And it motivates me even more to to share that the only one that can bring comfort and joy and satisfaction to their souls is the man, Jesus Christ. And while they may see it as condescension, my heart breaks for them. And I have compassion and love towards these poor souls. And I hope that you do too. We're going to leave with a final application here of how one might be restored to the image of God. If you will turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we once again have this wonderful explanation of the image of God. Again, this is on page 965 of your pew Bible. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to these cunning false teachers that try to manipulate people into following Christ, which really, it's not really that they want people to follow Christ. They want people to follow them as they are the disseminators of information about Jesus. Uh, Paul will later call them these super apostles. Uh, He says that tongue-in-cheek as he talks about them. Sadly, we have that today where there are people that want to stand in pulpits and want people to follow them rather than in God. But in contrast to this, Paul doubles down on the pure message of faith alone in Christ Jesus and his atoning work to save sinners. And that is exclusively what he will rely upon. Paul will preach Christ alone. So he writes in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul will share the gospel alone. And he asks everyone to witness, what is it that I'm declaring here? Verse 3, and even if our gospel, when when he declares it, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So my friend, if you have this nagging feeling inside of you of being and feeling unfulfilled, of, of looking for a purpose, of feeling hopeless, look to Christ to restore the image of God within you. Look to Jesus. He is the only one that can bring the satisfaction to your souls that you're looking for. And we have this marvelous message, brothers and sisters. We are only here in this world for a second compared to all of eternity. You continue to look to the image of Christ knowing that you are in progress of your sanctification. Don't be frustrated and give up. Keep seeking holiness. Keep striving for the image of God. Keep moving forward as the Holy Spirit works within you. And as he does so, every failure and every attempt that you get back up, every time you will hear the words of Scripture, my grace is sufficient for you. This is where I'm leading you. And as we're getting there, my grace is sufficient for you. And with such a marvelous message, it is a sufficient message. We don't need anything more. Don't give up hope in sharing the gospel. Don't think that you have to transform somebody any other way other than a declaration of the gospel. We proclaim and he saves. We proclaim, he saves. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize within this passage of Scripture that you are such a good, benevolent God. You created this beautiful world for us for us to have dominion in and to subdue it and to, to fill it, to, to be able to do things for your glory in which we would find enjoyment. You provided us with that purpose in life and you gave us everything that we needed to thrive in it. And Lord, we still see your goodness in that we have failed you. We have sinned against you. We have ruined what you intended for us but we see that you still uphold and you maintain that you are going to restore us to the full image of God. And you did so through this wonderful plan of salvation, that you would bring your one and only son into the world to take on flesh, to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross, that he could stand in our place, receive all the penalty of sin that we deserve from you, and yet also be able to give us his righteousness in exchange. So that as we work towards this concept of an image of God, as we strive for it, we do know and we hear your grace is enough. It is enough. It will take care of every need in our lives. So Lord, allow us to do as our brother Paul has done. Let us 
double down on the gospel even more. Let us believe it more today than we believed it yesterday. Let us proclaim it more today than we did yesterday. Let us understand and see that it is only in Christ alone that our hope is found. We pray this in the finished work of our Savior. Amen.